here at, at, the, at the gathering of God's people. As you know, I took, my family and I took a, a, a couple of weeks away from Grace Bible Church, and during the first week, Angie and I were able to have a great and refreshing time on vacation in, in Orlando, and also ma- mainly Cocoa Beach. We spent the time, time there on the beach. It was, in, it was incredibly enjoyable, or enjoy, I, we incredibly, or we enjoyed it incredibly, I guess we'll say. Can't get that word out. I, I can't fully express, even with my words, I can't fully express my thankfulness to you for allowing us that time and loving us during Pastor Appreciation Month. Last week, my wife and I, uh, we, so we, two weeks ago we were on vacation. Last week we attended Grace Jacks, Grace Community Church Jacksonville. We were able to touch bases with some of the young men who have preached here over the past few years. Uh, we've also, we were also able to talk to a couple of of the elders there who are who are will be helping us as our uh, as a leadership as our, as we transition over the next few months. I'm always excited to see what the Lord is doing in his work here at Grace Bible Church. We've always endeavored here to walk by faith and not by sight as we work to see this church fully established in the Lord. I believe that God wants us at this point in time to take a step forward in faith. Almost five years ago, I arrived here with my family in Gainesville. We had no idea at that time what God would do as we drove toward Florida. Angie and I drove across with the two dogs, and, and it, was a, it was a long drive, but it was, we enjoyed it together for the most part, I think. No, we did. But we had no idea what the Lord was going to do. We were faithfully putting one foot in front of the other, trusting that God knew exactly what He was going to do. And as I look back, it's hard to believe what God has done and continues to do here in this body of Christ. Church, I believe God wants us to attempt big things for Him. I don't think He wants us to walk around scared to make a move. He doesn't want us to be scared to fail. Now, I fully recognize that we need to be wise as we do His work. We need to account for the resources He's given us. And I'm certain that he's not happy when his people foolishly squander the means that they've been given. I'm certain of that. But I'm also confident that he wants us to use our spiritual gifts to proclaim the name of Christ. I firmly believe that is God's will, or that is God, or was God's will that that in, in planting this church. I firmly believe that it was God's will for us to plant this church. Therefore, we have done so in faith, knowing that God will protect this church, and that He will give us everything that we need. From the beginning of Grace Bible Church, I've only spoken a few times about giving, and there's a reason for that. This is true because you have been been incredibly generous, incredibly generous. But over these past few weeks, some changes have come our way. Phil mentioned something earlier, but some changes have come our way, some potential changes have come our way that we need to consider as a body. As some of you are aware, the Chang family will be transitioning to Kansas City over the next few months. I think it's in February, right, Phil, that you'll be leaving officially? This dear family has been with us since August of 2017. Is that correct? Did I get that right? Just a few months, actually only about eight months after we planted this church, they came to be with us. I remember him walking through the door, and I I had met him 
unofficially met him in, in uh, California at Grace Community Church. And I looked up and I said, well, I know that face. And, but from that point forward, God has chosen to use them in, in building his church here in Gainesville. But now, in February, he will be placing them in another body. Now, their departure, I, I, can, say, I can say with certainty that their departure is difficult for many reasons. But I am confident that it gives us a great opportunity. Many of you, many of you will be asked to step in greater serving roles in the near future. Also, we need to address some, and we are addressing some potential leadership gaps. And as I mentioned earlier, we have asked the, the elders at Grace Community Jacksonville to help us in that transition, to give us wisdom. We're also praying, though, that God will raise up men from within this congregation and bring other gifted men to us. As, as Phil transitions out, I am persuaded to believe that God will raise up other men. And I'm persuaded to believe that God will use Phil and his family in Kansas City. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4 that Jesus gives gifts to his church. I am confident. I'm confident that he will give us the men and women needed to do his work here in Gainesville. I have no doubt whatsoever. And as, as Phil mentioned in the announcement, announcements, in God's sovereign timing, we have also been given an opportunity to rent a facility here in, in town that is a larger facility. It has, it, it has, it is a, there are definitely advantages to being in this facility, that, that facility. And considering this time of transition, as, uh, considering the changes that we've got coming, we are coming, we are seeking the Lord for wisdom in this matter. We want to have, as Phil mentioned, a congregational meeting so that you will have the opportunity to give us feedback and wisdom regarding this potential move. We want to hear what you have to say. Now, you might be asking, well, what can I do as, as we move forward? Well, first, let me give you the first thing. First, pray with us. I think Phil asked, that's what Phil prefaced with when he gave the announcement. Pray with us. Pray that God gives us wisdom in this transition and in the decision to potentially move buildings. Secondly, pray that God provides the resources that we need. Pray that God provides the resources that we need. If He wants us to be in this other building... I am, I am certain, I have faith that He will give us the resources that we need, but we need to seek Him. We need to seek Him. That's what He wants us to do. He wants us to seek Him in these kinds of things. Third, pray that He raises up and brings gifted men. Notice I said, raises up. Some of you already here that would be raised up to be, to be leaders and that He brings other gifted men and women to serve the body. We know that He can do it. We're not sitting here thinking, oh no, what's going to happen? Well, no, we're sitting here thinking, what's God going to do? What's God going to do? Secondly, first was serve, pray, pray with us. Secondly, serve. Serve the body. Find ways to serve. Let us know your availability in areas where you want to serve. 
And if there's a ministry that we're not doing, I just had a, a conversation with a dear brother this past week. He let me know of a couple of things that he thought that we should be doing. Just let us know, and we may say, go for it. We may say, yes, brother or sister, go, do this thing. Thirdly, thirdly, so first pray, second serve, thirdly give, give. We worship our Lord through giving. He expects us to give generously to the work of the gospel. He expects us to steward what we've been given, but he expects us to give generously. <clears throat> if we decide to move to that other building, we will be praying that we are praying that you will support this endeavor. My heart is that we begin also to consider doing more in local outreach and international outreach. So we, in order to do those things, in order to, to rent buildings, in order to pay salaries, we need the, the resources to do. All these things take money and resources. And we trust that you will continue to be generous in your giving. Now, today we're continue our, continuing our series called Preparing for Battle. <clears throat> it's interesting to me that the first century church at Ephesus faced challenges similar to, our, to ours. Just a few years before Paul... It, Ephesus was a fledgling little church plant. Paul spent two years at Ephesus to build up the body, but he was called by God to move on to other places. <clears throat> As he wrote this letter... He actually was not in Ephesus, but was in prison for the sake of the gospel. He wrote to encourage the church not to lose heart, but to stay faithful in preaching the gospel. You see, we need to understand, people come and go, but the work never changes. Do you understand that? You guys come and go. I may leave someday. I don't know. I'm not planning on it, by the way. But the point is, is that... that People come and go. Even someone as critical as Paul can leave, yet the gospel work still continues unabated. And in healthy churches, others step up and keep the work moving forward. And in these coming months, we get the opportunity to model what it looks like when the Lord moves someone who has been critical to the work. We get to show, people, show that people come and go, but the Lord never changes. Now, as we return to Ephesians 6... Let's continue to look at the full armor which God provides. So let's jump back in, into the text. Let me pray, and then I'm going to read the text that we're in, uh, Ephesians 6, 10, 10 through 17, and then we'll jump back in. This morning again. Father, I do pray this morning. You say in James 1, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who is, who is a generous giver. Father, we know that every good gift, all good things come down from above. And we also know that there is no variation in you. We know that the work here at Grace Bible Church will continue, if it's your will. Father, you will bring those who you want to be here. We can trust in that. Father, we thank you this morning again. In Christ's name, amen. Ephesians 6.10 Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, 
against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to in, to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation the spirit which is the word of god it was a bright clear morning a large crowd had gathered at niagara falls to see the famous blondin Charles Blondin, walk over it on a tightrope across the thundering falls. The sun glistened as the cascading torrent rushed over the precipice. That is, From below came the ceaseless thunder of the plunging rush of water. The world's greatest tightrope walker tested the taut strand that reached across the abyss to the opposite bank. He took his long pole and he balanced himself expertly and started across. The crowd followed every movement tensely. Step by step, he moved forward. The people on the shore reacted nervously nervously at every sharp motion of the balancing pole. But their fears and forebodings were unnecessary. The great Blondin not only went across safely, but he returned as well, much to the relief and admiration of the spectators. After coming back, he turned to the audience and made a sensational offer. He would cross the falls again, this time with someone on his back. Who was willing to go? As you may expect, no one rushed forward to accept the deal. Picking out a man at random, Blondin asked, Do you believe that I am able to carry you across? Yes, sir, came the unhesitating reply. Well, then let's go. Not on your life. And the man withdrew into the crowd, and so it went, one after the other. They expressed great confidence that this tightrope walker could could take them across, but no one agreed. Finally, a courageous young fellow moved toward the front of the crowd. Blondin repeated his question, Do you believe that I can take you safely across? And he said, Yes, I do. Are you willing to let me? As a matter of fact, I am. The young man climbed on the expert's back, and Blondin stepped onto the rope, paused momentarily, and then across the falls he went without difficulty. There were many in in that crowd who believed that Blondin could do it, but there was only one willing to trust him to do it. Faith. Faith. The writer of Hebrews tells us that, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The Apostle Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith. Now, I would argue that we all have faith in something. Some folks put their faith in material things. Some in their power. Some in their fame. In the case of the man who went across Niagara Falls, he put his faith in the skill of a man. Yet, the true Christian fully puts his faith in one thing. They put their faith in the living God. This truth was demonstrated in the life of Abraham, was it not? Genesis 15, 6 said, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. We are saved by grace through faith, yet Abraham acted upon his faith in God. 
He demonstrated his faith by taking Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him. He knew all along as he was going up that God would provide. He trusted that God would even raise him from the dead. <coughs> Considering that kind of faith, a faith of, that is alive, how then are we to... Paul gives the answer in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. You see, we live by faith. Yet, yet many Christians shrink back when challenged to walk by faith, just like most of the men in that crowd at Niagara Falls that day. You see, we live by everything we can see. We trust our bank account as we make decisions. We point to our standing in the community as we're challenged. We look to our jobs for our sense of worth. The list goes on and on, does it not? In James chapter 2, James argues that faith without works is a dead faith. He says that kind of faith saves no one and is useless. You see, some of James' readers had refused to receive their brethren when they had nothing to eat or drink. They had no nothing to clothe them. They sent them on their way saying, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. You see, they understood, these people understood that receiving their brothers and sisters would endanger their comfortable lives. They were unwilling to act in faith and trust that God would ultimately protect them. And their unwillingness to care for their brethren showed that they did not have any true faith. This morning... As we return to this series in Ephesians 6.10, we're going to see that Paul encouraged the Ephesians to carry on the ministry of the gospel in his absence. Paul understood that this road of faith, this road of faith would be difficult for them. He knew that Satan would take every opportunity to attack them. Yet he wanted them to act in faith in his absence, trusting that God would protect them and that God would pr prosper the ministry. Now, in the first two chapters of Ephesians, Paul took the time to encourage the church at Ephesus with their hope uh, of their the, with the hope of their calling in Christ. Just listen to uh, Paul's prayer in Ephesians one eighteen and nineteen. He says, "I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints." And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. Now let me tell you something, brethren. Let me tell you something profound. If the eyes of your heart have been enlightened to know, to truly know the hope of His calling, if, the, if you've been enlightened to understand the riches of the glory of His inheritance and the surpassing greatness of His power, then you will act in faith. You won't be afraid. I'm not saying there won't be transient fear. But ultimately, you will act in faith if you believe all of those things. If you believe, if you, if, when you believe uh, God's promises and you believe that He can accomplish everything by His power, you won't be limited by the things that you see. And when, you, when we trust in worldly things. Now, mark this down. When we trust in worldly things, we're terrified to move forward unless the path is clear. These limit, limitations did not. They did not characterize Paul's ministry. And that's, that was his main point in chapter 3. According to Paul, he had been given the stewardship of grace. 
Just listen to his words in Ephesians 3, 7 through 10. He's speaking of the gospel here. He says, the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. And then Phil quoted this earlier. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I give you that scripture. I, I cite that scripture because I want you to understand that Paul fully recognized God's call on his life and he walked it out by faith. And he did it as he faced great hardship and even demonic attacks. Now I would argue that in Ephesians 6, 10-20, Paul gives insight into how he prepares for battle. Outside of Christ, Paul probably sustained more demonic attacks than any Christian who has ever lived. We would do well to listen to him. As he gives us critical instruction for how to withstand Satan's wicked schemes by putting on the full armor of God. You can bet that Paul had the full armor of God on. Now, let me give you the proposition here, Paul's proposition. In Ephesians 6.13, which we looked at a few weeks ago, Paul reiterated the urgency for the Christian to take up the full armor of God, to be able to resist the evil of our day. In verses 14 through 17, Paul gives six critical pieces, six critical pieces, of the armor of the armor which we are put on for resisting. So, we must prepare by first, we've seen this already by girding ourselves, girding yourself with the belt of truth. Look at your text. Paul writes, "Stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth." Now, we looked at this piece a few weeks ago and we saw that this was not just having a knowledge of the truth as critical as it is to have knowledge of what is true, but we certainly need that knowledge. But, but Paul's point is that we need to be prepared with the truth. We need to be prepared. This, this uh, piece of armor speaks of an attitude of readiness. We are, not, if we are not ready to battle for the truth until we have girded our loins with truth. This means that we are fully prepared to battle for the truth. We know the truth. We love the truth, and we count the cost, and we make ourselves ready to fight for the truth when the attack comes. We must be earnestly, we must be ready to earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We must be committed to the victory. Preparation 2. Paul writes in Ephesians 14, look back at your text, "...having put on the breastplate of righteousness." We studied this piece of armor again a few weeks ago and saw that the righteousness, this righteousness is the breastplate that protects us against the devastating blows of the enemy. It, it protects our vital organs, if you will. Now, I also argued that Paul is probably not talking about the imputed righteousness that we're given at salvation. It is true 
that we have been given the very righteousness of Christ. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We are justified by His righteousness because we are in Him. And that, that Romans 3.22, Paul says that that very righteousness is applied to us. We are given even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But I argued that Paul has something different in mind here. It is very true that the, the believer is ultimately protected from, by God from demonic attack. But it is also true that we can live in a fleshly way which gives Satan an opportunity to, to attack us. Here in Ephesians 6.14, I would argue that the breastplate of righteousness then refers to righteous or holy living, which does not give Satan an opportunity to attack us effectively. You see, righteousness, righteousness becomes that breastplate. Now, you may argue that he's referring to imputed righteousness here. And as I said last time I preached, that's okay, because if you have the very righteousness of God, then you are called to live according to that righteousness. And ultimately, we end up in the same place. Our justification by, by Christ's righteousness should always result in righteous living before Him. In the words of Apostle, the Apostle Paul from Romans 6.11, even so... Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to, Christ, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Preparation three. Shod your feet with the gospel of peace. Look back at Ephesians 6.15. He says, And having shod your feet with the gospel of peace, first we saw last time that I preached that the text doesn't say that we are to shed our feet with the gospel, but it says that we are to shed our feet with the preparation of the gospel. Last time we said that, the, that he is speaking of the believer's readiness or preparation with the gospel. When Satan attacks us, we are to be prepared to withstand his attacks. And what are we to be prepared with? First and foremost, the gospel. You know, when we think of the gospel message, we automatically think of the message of the gospel, which when we think of the gospel, we automatically think of the message of the gospel, which we are to share with others. And it, yes, it is that, but we must acknowledge that the gospel message is first and foremost an encouragement to the believer. Listen to, to Paul in Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. Then he says this in Romans 1.17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. In other words, true faith, true faith is not just at salvation. True faith endures from salvation to glorification. And what do we have faith in? What do we have faith in? We have faith in the truth of the gospel. Therefore, the righteous man shall live by faith in the truth of the gospel message. It's what gives us our, gives us our strength. It's what gives us our sure footing, if you will, using the, 
being shod with the gospel, preparation of the gospel of peace. So when Satan attacks us, we can stand firm on the good news that Christ has died for us, that Christ in His death has atoned for our sin, and in His, in His resurrection, we will be resurrected as well to glorified bodies. Fourth preparation. And this is a, a new one. Look at your text in Ephesians 6.16. Paul writes, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the arrows of the evil one. Now, the phrase, in addition to all, in the NAS could be translated above all. Paul literally is saying, in everything. So, after describing these various pieces of the armor, he says, above all, or in everything... The Christian is to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. He is to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. These things are certainly part of the armor, but our faith, the shield of faith, protects all these things above all. <clears throat> In the words of Spurgeon, but though these are all armor, he's speaking of those pieces that we just mentioned, yet faith is an armor for his armor. It is not only a defense for him, but a defense for his defenses. Thus, faith not only shields the man, but shields his graces too, end quote. In other words, the armor he has described up, in, up until now is not complete and fully protected without taking up the shield of faith. Now, when you think of this shield, you may think of something like, Captain America's shield, the, the little round things, fairly small and round and easy to carry around. But Paul is not referring to that type of, of shield in this context. There's, there were uh, different kinds of shields used by soldiers in Paul's day, but this particular reference in our text it references a large shield. It's, it's probably two to three feet wide and, and very tall. The, the word... Translated shield sometimes signifies a door to give you a, a better image in your mind. These, these shields were as large as a door. And they were slightly curved. Therefore, they could deflect the attacks without transferring full force of the assault to the man holding the shield. So they would, de they would deflect off. And they were large enough to cover or, or shield the man entirely. In the same way, in the same way, we can understand that our faith covers entirely the entirety, uh, entirety of our body, bodies like a shield. Clearly, the main idea is that faith, like a shield, protects us from the attacks of the enemy. In Psalm 5.12, King David proclaimed, For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. Therefore, as the shield protected the entire soldier, faith protects the entire Christian by enveloping us all around. We are protected against all the uh, enemy's fiery missiles no matter where they're aimed at us. Put simply, faith protects the whole man or woman of God. Now, we should also make note that it's the shield that receives most of the blows from the enemy. Truth, truthfully, our faith, like a shield, receives what the, the blows that are meant for us. 
According to Peter in 1 Peter 1.7, uh, as, we, as we are distressed by various trials, it is the genuineness of our faith. It's the genuineness of our faith which carries us through when tested by fire. In James 1.3, James says that it's the testing of our faith that produces endurance. You, get the, you, you understand that. In other words, it's our genuine faith that protects and causes us to, to persevere. In the words of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, he says, faith upholds the Christian under all trials. Now, he goes on to say a longer quote, I think, that you have in your notes. But the idea is, is that it's faith that undergirds us and upholds us. You could even say, the greater our faith, the greater it will be tested. George Mueller, a great man of the faith, once said, God delights to increase the faith of his children. We ought, instead of wanting no trials before victory, no exercise for patient, to be, patience, to be willing to take them from God's hand, hand as a means. Do you get that? So the trials are a means. And he says this, I say, and I say it deliberately, trials and obstacles and difficulties and sometimes defeats, defeats are the very food of faith. You say, you, you, true faith then never fails to protect us. Charles Spurgeon elo- eloquently states, let the soldier be ready when the war comes. Let him expect the conflict as, part and necessary, as a part and necessary consequence of his profession, as a Christian, that is. But be armed with faith, it receives the blows. The poor shield is knocked and hammered and battered like a penthouse exposed in the time of storm. Blow after blow comes rattling upon it, and though it turns death aside, yet the shield is compelled itself to bear the cut and the thrust. So must our faith do. It must be cut at, and it must bear the blows. End quote. Now, in order for our faith to be effective, it must be strong. And strong faith rests solely on one thing. That's the finished work of Christ. We cannot mix confidence in self and in, in any flesh or it weakens it. Our, our faith must be holy or in, and entirely upon Christ. It is in Him that faith is useful. He alone forges the shield of faith. <coughs> he alone determines the measure of, of our faith. As we saw earlier, Paul's faith rested solely on the truth of the gospel. Our faith must rest solely on the truth of the gospel. Our faith must be shaped by the truth of God's words and get God's word. Again, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, listen, then you must see to it that your faith is that which rests only upon truth. If there be any error or false notion in the fashioning of it, that shall be a joint in it which the spear can pierce. Our faith must be tested and strengthened by the heat of trial, by the, the difficulty of suffering. Now this is a, this is a I, I will grant you, this is a difficult truth that mo- most Christians, most of us want to avoid. Most of us want to run away when the going gets tough. But when the going gets tough, the true faith of the Christian proves to be much tougher. Now there's something else about this shield. Look back at your text in Ephesians 
This is taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Uh, the, Romans, the Roman soldier's shield was covered many times with thick leather. And, and sometimes this leather was saturated with oil that would extinguish the fiery arrows of the enemy. Ancient armies typically used small arrows which were tipped with, uh, with a material dipped in flammable spirit. And when shot, they would blaze as they flew through the air, targeting the tents and houses and timber walls of their enemy's reinforcement. In some cases, the arrows were even dipped in poison. They would, they would, call these, uh, they would shoot these uh, fiery darts, and, and when they would, uh, would touch you they, or graze the skin, they would inject fiery poison into the veins. The soldiers on the, on the front line required a shield to protect himself from the arrows and the blows of the enemy. Unfortunately, if he kept himself from being hit by a death blow, yet was struck by a fiery arrow, then he would be set on fire. Therefore, the shield not only protected from the death blows of the enemy, but it protected him from the, the fires and the poisons of these arrows. Now, I would argue that these fiery arrows of flame and poison that Paul is referencing here symbolize the temptation which the enemy lofts our way. These temptations to sin could be the temptations to lust and sexual impurity, to lying, to stealing and greed, to, to pride and vanity, to anger, malice, and even murder, to jealousy and covetousness. Most of these things Paul had actually, has actually already addressed in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 in the, the, the walk of the Christian. These flaming arrows of temptation that I speak of are an accepted part of this broken system of the world. Now I would also argue, so I, I would say that they are temptations, but I would also argue that they could be accusations against the believer. In Revelation 12, 10, the Apostle John says that, that Satan is the accuser who accuses the brethren before our God day and night. Considering then the shield's ability, uh, speaking of the soldier's uh, uh, shield, the, its ability to absorb and put out these fiery arrows, our faith in the same way has a quenching power. Our, our faith sees the, the arrows of temptation and blasphemy and insinuation lofted against us with all its poison and fire, and it snuffs them out. It renders them completely ineffective. And takes away the fiery poison and quenches the fire. We are fully protected from these dangerous temptations, uh, uh, deadly accusations by our faith, in the person, and in the work of Christ. Again, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, Oh, it is wonderful how God sometimes enables His people to live in the midst of temptations and tribulations as though they had none of them. I believe that some of the martyrs, when they were burning in the fire, hardly suffered any pain because the joy and peace which God gave them delivered them from the vehement heat. End quote. I don't know. But I know this. Faith. Now before we leave this, this piece of armor, I want you to consider one other aspect. In our individualistic society, we tend to look at this text from a personal point of view, do we not? 
But I would argue that, that Paul had the whole church in mind when he penned this text. According to historians, the Roman military had an incredibly effective tactic using these large shield, shields. So when Rome's enemy began firing these fiery arrows uh, at the soldiers, they would come together to form a rectangular formation. This was called a testudo or tortoise formation. You can look it up in the, on the internet. It's pretty cool to give you an idea. The soldiers around the perimeter used their shields as a protective wall, while those in, in the inside, the men in the inside, raised their shields above their head to heads to protect everyone from the flaming arrows. This formation then was, was incredibly difficult to penetrate with flaming arrows, and in effect, these people, these soldiers were joined together as one. Now, you may recall Paul's words in Ephesians 4, 4 through 5. He says, 4 through 6, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Beloved, the local church are to be one in Christ. We are to raise our shields and interlock them together. We are to join together to strengthen one another. And we become a formidable defense against the flaming arrows of the enemy if we remain as one. We must remember we're not alone. If we are to win the battle, it will be by putting our faith in Christ, standing side by side as we triumph against the enemy. Again, in the formidable words of Charles Spurgeon, On, champion, on. In the name of him that is with you, no lance can, can pierce that shield. No sword will ever be able to cut through it. It shall preserve you in all battle and in all strife. You shall bring it home yourself, though, it shall, though you shall be more than a conqueror. Faith, then, faith, then, is like a shield. Because it has to bear the blows. End quote. Let's look at the fifth. Quickly look at the fifth piece of armor. Paul says to take up the helmet of salvation. Look at your text in verse 17. And take up the helmet of salvation. Roman soldiers had, had helmets which protected their heads in the battle. They protected their heads from grave injury, especially from the broadsword, which was commonly used in Paul's day. This sword was a large double-edged sword that measured three or four feet long. It, commonly, it was commonly used by soldiers on, on horseback, the, the Roman cavalry. These soldiers would take aim at the heads of the foot soldiers, uh, trying to split their skull or, or even fully decapitate them. Many of the helmets were made of thick leather covered with metal plates, while some were heavy, uh, heavy molded or beaten metal. Uh, they, they usually had pieces that came, came down around the cheek. You've seen the pictures uh, on each side to protect the face. Ultimately, the helmets protected the soldier from a crushing blow to the head, bringing instant death. Now, we have to keep the type of, of helmet, that type of helmet in mind here. Look back at your text. It is the helmet of salvation. Now, 
there are a few aspects of salvation that we need to recognize. First, there is justification, which is God's gracious act to forgive our sins and declare us righteous through the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Paul writes in Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Justification, then, is a one-time act by which God declares us righteous in His sight by applying Christ's righteousness to the sinner. We've seen that. We quoted 2 Corinthians 5.21 just a few minutes ago. Now, every believer has been justified. Get this. Every believer has been justified and remains so forever. Now, I don't think that Paul is actually specifically speaking of justification. Because the only ones who can take up God's armor have already been justified by Christ. They have been forgiven of their sins and they have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. But while I don't think that Paul is referring to the one-time act of justification, I do think he's referring to something else that has to do with it. He's referring to the effect, the effect of it, the result of it, if you will. In Ephesians 1.7, in Ephesians 1.7, he says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In that verse, he is speaking of us being justified. We have been justified through the blood of Christ. But in Ephesians 1.13 and 14, he says, In Him you also, after hearing the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, Now listen to this. You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So therefore, after hearing the gospel, the message of truth, you believed and you were saved. But you were also secured. You were sealed. You were secured. Jesus affirms this proof in in John 10, 26. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Here's the point, beloved. The true believer. Now, I'm I'm qualifying. The true believer is absolutely, without any doubt, secure in Christ. You cannot, if you're a true believer, you cannot lose your salvation. Paul captures this beautiful truth in Romans 8.29. He says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And then he says this, so he predestined them, and then he said, those whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. It's absolutely certain. It's so certain that Paul can speak of it in the past tense. And it's true for you and I both if we are in Christ. 
this truth led Paul to declare in Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who also interceded for us. Then he said, who will separate us from the love of Christ? He ultimately says, nothing. Nothing. But in all these things, and all those things that, that seek to separate us from the love of Christ, and all those things, we over, overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced, he says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now let me tie this back to the helmet of salvation in Ephesians 6. Our enemy seeks to land fatal blows against God's elect, but he will never connect, no matter how hard he tries. The believer has been supernaturally protected. But here's the truth. We have to take up this helmet of salvation. We have to live according to the truth that we cannot be struck by a fatal blow from the enemy. And living with that understanding frees us to serve our Lord without fear. You see, we have the assurance of salvation. We have the hope, the future hope of glorification. James 1.12, I think of James 1.12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Christian, you take heart that you are in Christ and can never be snatched away. Those who are in Christ can never be taken away from Him. Be courageous while the enemy may batter you with his schemes. He cannot strike the fatal blow. You are a spiritual immortal. Yes, physically we're going to die. But spiritually we are mortal. And we're going to receive that glorified body, which is much better than the body we have now. In the words of Martin Luther, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. No matter how bad it gets in this life, we know that God will not allow a crushing blow. We know this because Christ has already struck the fatal blow on our enemy at the cross where He defeated, uh, defeated Satan. <clears throat> we have a defeated enemy. He's defeated. If you're here today and you haven't Put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're not protected. If you're not in Christ, you're not protected. If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I beg you to do so now. He came to earth. Christ came to earth. God in the flesh. He lived the life, the perfect life you can never live. He died not for the sins He committed, but for the sins of the elect. If you would only believe. 
In the words of Isaiah the prophet, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. I pray that you'll come to see that in his death, speaking to the unbelievers here, I pray that you'll come to see that in his death and in his resurrection you find precious life. And not understand the truth of the gospel. Only those who are in Christ, only those who are in Him come to see. I pray, I beg you, cry out to Him. Don't let, don't let this day go by. Don't let another minute go by without crying out to Him. He beckons you to come and find rest. find it interesting in 2 Corinthians 4 as we close Paul says this and even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing if you don't understand if you don't understand the words of the gospel it's because it's veiled because the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. That's what Paul says. So that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is, in, who is the image of God. Then he goes on to say in verse 6, this is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If you're here today and you don't know Him, I pray, I, ask, you, I beg the Lord to let the light shine in your darkness so that you may have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let me end with, if you're here today, believer or unbeliever, if the Holy Spirit has convicted you regarding any of these things, any of the truths contained here in this sermon, or if you have any questions about the Christian faith, please, please seek us. Seek a, a, a mature Christian and ask them these questions. I'm here, I'll be here for the next hour or so. So I usually, my wife gets, me, gets upset with me because I stay so long sometimes. That's okay. Please seek someone out. Don't let the day go by. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the truths of your word. Father, may we take up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. May we live before you courageously. May the fears of this world be driven away. May the fiery darts of the enemy be extinguished. May we trust that we will persevere in Christ. Father, I pray that you would give us assurance of that salvation. In Christ's name, amen.